Well, yesterday was my day to put up the outside Christmas lights. And all I can say about that was I was just glad it wasn't raining. Besides the rest of that, it was a pretty rough day. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I don't know about you, but my, my Chris, outdoor Christmas lights are going to be more than 10 years old. So my strategy this year was to lay them all out in the driveway and make sure they work before I put them up. So I plug in one strand, nothing, in the trash. Plug in another strand, nothing, throw it in the trash. One of them worked, all right, plug something else into the end of it. So I get some of them kind of laid out in the driveway. My neighbor yells over from next door. He says, who's winning? Now, I had the radio on. I, I thought, he was th- thought I was listening to a game, which is what I'm usually doing, you know, but he meant who was winning with the lights. And about then, it was a tie. By the time the day was over, I lost. You know, you, you, they're laid out in the driveway, and they're all working. Then you put them up, you get them in the bushes, and you get them on the house, and et cetera. Then half of them didn't work, you know. And, and you know, as I'm putting them up, I'm thinking, these are going to look awful. I don't have enough of them. Whatever. You know, people are going to drive you by holding up a big backwards L. Lame, you know. You know, and it's just like... You know, you just, it's like, ugh. So now i got to take them all down and put new ones up. You know, and, and in the middle of all of that, a story that my father told me a long, long time ago. You know how dads love to tell stories about how rough their childhoods were and et cetera. And he used to love to tell us, like, you know, in Christmas, I was just grateful if I got a fresh piece of, you know, like a fresh piece of fruit, like an apple or an orange or whatever, you know. This while they're, you know, they're, you know, so you're supposed to feel guilty while you're opening all the gifts they went out and bought you. You know, oh, you got an apple when I was a kid, you know. Like, what am I supposed to do with that, you know, kind of idea. But, but one of the stories really spoke to me related to this. It was a story of, he's, my father's the sixth out of seven children in his family. Actually eight, but one of them was born still. But he was the sixth out of the seven living children. And he was the youngest of the five boys. And one of his oldest brothers, uh, back when my dad was still literally uh, seven, eight years old, um, decided he wanted to take up smoking, smoking cigarettes. My grandfather, who was a, a farmer, wasn't too happy with the situation. So he thought he'd try some reverse psychology on him. So he said, all right, he says, you can smoke. But you're going to sit down, and you're going to smoke a whole pack without stopping. So he sat down, and he just started one after another, you know. And he goes through the 20, and, and he's sick as a dog. You know, he's just sick. Now, my, gra- my grandfather figured that would make him stop, right? It didn't, of course. You know how that goes. And, um, you know, but the reason that story came to mind is that, you know, even too much of a good thing can become bad, can it? And hasn't that been just a little bit of our experience with Christmas. You know, it, it's, I mean, I was driving around a little bit, and people had the Christmas trees up before Thanksgiving, you know? And, and, and Advent was, the first day of Advent was the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I mean, it just seems to be getting longer and longer every year kind of idea. And, and for many of us, Christmas, you know, we love that Christmas Eve kind of peaceful feeling we get. You know, we go to service, we drive home, everything's quiet, everything's closed, and, and there's kind of a special feeling about that kind of night, but but for the rest of the time, Christmas is almost something we just kind of endure, isn't it? For some of you, Christmas will be a very painful experience. You'll be experiencing, uh, you know, just some of the acuteness of some of the loss that you've had in your journey. And for others, you'll experience that loss because your, your family is no longer a family. And Christmas is just one of these reminders to you that because your kids are not with you on Christmas Day, it's just a reminder of what, what's happened. And for so many people, Christmas is a very painful day. For some of the rest of us... You know, our Christmas is really kind of filled with guilt, if you will. You know, every, every Christmas card you get in the mail from somebody that you didn't send one to, it's like, oh, now i got to write another one. You know, you're getting it out the door. Or you go you're back to your desk after a coffee break, and there's some more goodies on your desk from somebody who says, man, i got to make more stuff now. And, and we, just, we just feel all kinds of guilt and obligation with Christmas at times, don't we? For others, we're just stressed out, either trying to create the perfect Christmas or trying to find the perfect Christmas gift. Or we're stressed out trying to figure out how we're going to pay for all the gifts we already bought. You know, and the list just kind of goes on and on. 
For others, there's just a general sense of fatigue. You're just tired. You know, it just seems like a lot of motion to go through. And yet there's another group where Christmas is almost like any other time of the year. Life is so overwhelming. So much of it is outside their control. They aren't able really to change their patterns. And Christmas is just like everything else. And that can be sad in its own way. And, you know, and I know this sounds a little bit like a kind of a, a bah humbug kind of sermon at the start. And, and it's not designed to be that way. You know, um, but here, here's, here's the thought I really want to plant in our minds. You know, it's, it's not so much the question of, of, of why Christmas is like this or, or is it supposed to be like this. It's, it's really asking the question, what, what is, what is the, the, the heart and soul of Christmas? And, and I can tell you this morning, without a shadow of doubt in my mind, Christmas was not designed by God to save our economy. I mean, this year, I mean, Americans will spend somewhere around $450 billion on Christmas. And, and, and many retail stores make what? Almost 50% of their profit in this one season. You know, Target and Kohl's and Macy's and JCPenney, they're, they're looking at this saying that this, this is our bottom line. You know, but Christmas wasn't designed by God to save our economy or to make the stockholders of JCPenney wealthy. You know, Christmas happened because God was trying to change the world. The reason the very first nativity happened was because God was trying to change the world. And really, my, my, where, where I'm kind of going with my heart as we work through this journey is, how is it that we can transform our Christmas journey to be where it's about changing the world? Starting by changing us, and then by changing others. Now, now some of you have been here faithfully since September, and you're thinking, you know, Pastor, we, that's all we seem to be talking about is changing the world. You know, we did it in add, you know, the whole add one emphasis, you know, that we identify the things that we need to add to our faith, the kinds of things that God always uses to change the world. And we talked about attend one, you know, which is like that, what I come to refer to as 360-degree discipleship. You know, you need to have a, a part of your, your journey, what God always uses as a part of our journey and the journey of others. He uses face-to-face kind of discipleship. But he also uses the kind of discipleship where you're seeing the, the back of other people's heads in, in the sense of corporate worship. You know, the early church, they met in the temple and then they broke bread house to house. They had large groups, small groups. They had the kind of discipleship where they were seeing people in the back of their heads as they gathered together for worship and they had other experiences where they were looking people right in the eyes as they were struggling with God. God always uses those things. But serving, you know, God has always used serving in his name as a way to change the world. He just always has. The scripture's full of it. Starting way back in the Old Testament and making it all the way up to the end of the New Testament. And about reaching. The kingdom has always expanded as God's people shared their faith with other people. It's always been in the heart and soul of it. And, and I, I'm sorry, I can't apologize for challenging us on a regular basis to be about the most exciting thing that we can be doing with our, li- with our lives, which is to be partners with God and changing the world. So how do you do that with Christmas? If Christmas was a part of God's plan to change the world, how do we kind of get some of that back, you know? And, and I want to suggest to you today that we join in with some other churches in something called an Advent Conspiracy that we conspire together to change our experience of expecting the birth of Jesus Christ. And to do that through looking at three things over these next three weeks. One of those is to worship fully. We're going to talk about that in just more in just a minute. Also, to consider spending less but giving more. Cut down on what you spend on gifts, but give more of yourself away to people. Instead of buying somebody that Olive Garden gift card, invite them over for dinner. And through some of the savings, you know, use, your, use that extra resources to make a difference. You know, in a couple of years ago, you know, in the United States, we spent well over $400 billion on Christmas. 
And it was estimated at that point in time that for just a little over $20 billion, we could have made clean, fresh water accessible to everybody on the planet. Just even a small change can really make change, Christmas a world-changing event, not just for us, but for others. The last is just to love all. We'll talk about that as we go. But, but I want to start with this idea of, 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 lo- of worshiping God fully, because that's really the heart and soul of it. As our video said, you know, how is it that you and I can stop being bystanders to the incarnation experience? Because we got all these walls up. How can we kind of take the walls down and become participants in the incarnation experience? And I want to look at some things today. And that's, that's actually the focus of our, our Advent experience. So I want to read a passage for us from the beginning of Luke's Gospel, the second chapter. And then I'm going to invite uh, Mike and Marjorie Durbro to come. And they're going to read some more um, parts of the Christmas story for us today that focuses on people who worshipped God fully. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, our text today is on page 687. Sorry, 867. There we go. I think that's right. 867? I think that's right. Luke chapter 2. I know your outlines say verses 1 through 10. You can believe everything you read in the Bible. You can't believe everything you read in my outlines. There's a bit difference between those two because we're going to read verses 1 through 20, not just verses 1 through 10. And then Mike and Marjorie will come and continue to, to, to share with us about this idea of worshiping God. It'll be a lot of scripture, but that's never a bad thing for us. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the inn. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior, who is Messiah the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, The shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they they hurried off and they found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned to glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as they had been told. Mike and Marjorie, would you come and continue to read for us? And our dog, daughter Alexandra, too. Oh, I'm sorry. Hear the words of ordinary people who worship fully with their words and their very lives. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. 
He has given us a privilege since we have been rescued from our enemies' clutches to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence in all our days. And, child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of, God, of, because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Luke two twenty five through 32 There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord, Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple complex. When the parents brought the child Jesus to the temp- Jesus to the temple complex, when the parents brought the child Jesus to perform for him for him what was customary under the law, Simon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, "Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace, according to your word." For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Luke 2, 33-38. His father and mother were amazed at what was being told to them. Then Simon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe Asher. She was well among, um, along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her, mar- after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple complex, serving God night and day with fasting and prayer. At that very moment, she came up and began to talk, to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking f- forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, we could talk about how we worship fully. But, you know, my experience as a pastor over 25 years of ministry is that unless people, one, know that they're not worshiping God fully, and secondly, really have a desire to worship God fully, it doesn't really matter if they know how to worship God fully. So what I want to do this morning is we look at this Advent conspiracy and we ask ourselves about transforming our experience through worshiping God fully. What are some things that can tell us whether we're worshiping God fully? I mean, there's certainly many things that are a part of worship, reading the scriptures and praying, being together with other believers, expressing our thanks to God, joining together for corporate experience. There's, there's many things, but, but how is it that you and I can tell that we're really worshiping God fully, that we're not just kind of going through the motions or as one of the people, I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm faking it, you know, I'm just going through the church kind of, like, how can we really tell that we're worshiping God fully? And, and I think some of the participants in the very first Christmas experience are some great indicators for us. Let's take first of all, so, so what I want to do is I want to give you some symptoms. You know, you, you go to the doctor's office, they take your temperature, they take your pulse, they see how you're breathing, etc. And they will make a diagnosis of how healthy you are. 
Well, what, what are some symptoms that tell us that we're worshiping God fully? And the first of those I want to look at is the shepherds. Now, the shepherds are an interesting mix in this whole group. They, shepherds were, were not thought of well in the days of Jesus. They were kind of like the, the ancient world gypsies. You know, when they kind of blew through, you nailed everything down or you locked it up because what was left out, they just kind of took with them. And they, and they really were, in some ways, ostracized from the society, though we might think that these particular shepherds were the ones who were taking care of the temple flocks, you know, kind of, and, and the, 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 the sheep that would be used as a part of the offerings that were made up in the temple. But there's a lot of things we could say about the shepherds, but this is certainly a true statement. They were used to life at a slow pace. I mean, they worked hard, but they were used to life at a slow pace. You kind of get up and you just kind of wander your herd out to some place and, you know, they just start eating and they just keep eating and you just kind of stand around and keep an eye on them and one starts to wander away, you whistle at it, you go, and you, you did a lot of standing around. At the end of the day, you come back in and... You get them back into the pen, and the way a lot of that was built, especially the, the pens that were out on the, the hillsides, like these shepherds would have been out because they were outside the village at night. They were basically th- kind of like a rock wall, and there was an open area where they could go in, and, and the shepherd would lie down across the, the, the opening so the sheep couldn't get out. So, I mean, they were used to a lot of kind of standing around. They, they were used to a slow pace of life. They, they were lazy in some ways. They worked hard, but they were lazy, you know. What happens when they hear the story of the, the word from the angels? You know, the angel shows up and says, hey, I, I, got, I got news for you. This is good news. It's news that's going to make you really joyful. Right across the ridge here in the village of Bethlehem, the city of David, there's a child born and he's the Messiah. And you'll be able to tell which one he is because he's lying in a manger all wrapped up in cloth. And what, did, what does the scripture tell us they did? Well, they said, well, maybe we can get to that on Wednesday. You know, we don't want to rush into this stuff. So, man, you know, as soon as the angels were gone, it's like... Up and out. Said, man, hurry. Let's go. Let's get to the city right now and see this thing. And the scripture says, and they, and they hurried. You know, they didn't, they hurried. You know, one of the things that we can look at in our lives as to whether or not we're worshiping God fully is whether we have any urgency to connect with God. Is there any giddy up and go in your interest, in your passion, in your activity to connect with God? You know, if you and I are just, it's one of those things, well, I'll get to it when I have time. You know, yeah, I know it's important, but I've got a lot of other things going on right now. I'll, you know, if we don't have any urgency in connecting with God, we're probably not worshiping fully. Then you have the, what I call the Simeon or the wise men effect. And actually, you could probably throw almost all the characters in here. But, but you, you, we, we read about both of these guys in, in, in the New Testament sto- story. Simeon is this guy who, who has been looking for God to deliver the people. And it's been his passion. It's something he prays about every morning, every afternoon, every night. It's constantly in his heart. And he's looking for God's deliverance, his consolation. And, and God, as a result of his prayers, gives him a promise. He says, Simeon, you're not going to leave the planet until you see the Messiah. So Simeon's got his eyes open all the time. I'm not dead yet. So the Messiah must still must become. And he's looking because he wants to see the Messiah. He's in the temple that day. And Jesus arrives in the arms of Mary and Joseph. She's after giving birth, she was unclean for a while by, by their, their standards, and now she's clean, the rites of purification, whatever. And they're bringing the child up because they're going to offer up the appropriate offering, saying, we recognize that this child is your gift to us. So they're coming into the temple, and Simeon's looking for the Messiah. And he sees Jesus, and he says, you know what? God keeps his promises. And he, and he just kind of breaks out into a, a song of praise, doesn't he? Just a celebration. Wise men in the same way, right? Here's these guys. Can you imagine? I mean, we read them and say, oh, what a cool story. That kind of... These guys have been traveling for months to get to Jesus. You know, they're way off in the east, and they're looking at the stars, and they see this special star emerge in the sky, and they're, they start going through all of their books or whatever, and it's, oh, it's related to a prophecy about the birth of a king in Israel. And so they pack up their camels, and they travel 
travel for months. It's not like they went down to Logan and picked up a first-class ticket, hopped in and just said, I mean, these guys travel through the dust in the desert for months. And they get to Jerusalem, and they haven't heard anything about it. And finally, they make their way out to Bethlehem. And when they get there, even though their camels are loaded up with gold, frankincense, and some more, these incredible gifts, their only reaction, their first reaction, is like they just couldn't help it, is they just had to bow down and worship. And probably the way they did that in, in their culture was more to, to bow and then put their head to the ground like this. I mean, they just had to celebrate. You know, and you and I can tell that we're worshiping fully. That even with all that might be going on in our lives, deep down inside, we still feel a real sense of why we should celebrate God. It's a powerful impact of worshiping God fully. So we have the shepherd effect of having urgency and connecting with God. We have the, the simian effect or the wise men effects of, of sensing a real reason to celebrate God. And then we have the Mary effect. You know, I, Mary has, you know, it, it's, we, we celebrate her, and, and we should, but I don't think we appreciate the dilemma that she was in. You know, here, here was a, a young girl, maybe 15, 16 years of age. She's engaged to Joseph, which means she's legally married. And before they have their wedding night, she turns up pregnant. Now, in our society, you know, especially with a young girl like that, we, we might grieve over that, but, but in many ways, it's not a big deal. You know, you mean the celebrities, right? They say, well, I, you know, I'm pregnant out of wedlock, but I'm going to wait until I had the baby and get back in shape before I have the wedding because I want to look good when I get married. You know, you're right. You know, it's just not a big deal anymore. Back then, somebody like Mary could land up dead. They could be stoned for getting pregnant out of wedlock. So the angel shows up to her and says, Mary, I got good news for you. You're going to have a baby out of wedlock. And what does Mary say to her? Say to the, the angel, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. Be it to me as according to your word. You know, you, you and I can tell if we're really worshiping God fully, if we're, really, if we're really available to God to use. You know, if we're really available to God to use, if we, if we are genuinely available to be used of God, we can tell that we're worshiping God fully. You know, and I'm not talking about being available to show up for the adult Christmas party because there's going to be desserts there. I'm talking about being available to God to use in ways that, that might be challenging and uncomfortable and stretching and maybe even humbling. Then there's the Joseph effect. You know, can you, can you put yourself in the shoes of Joseph? You know, he, he's, he's engaged to be married to Mary, and she turns up pregnant before their wedding night. You know, and I, I, try to, I, I have two boys. I try to imagine what it would be like if my daughter had come home and said to me, I'm pregnant, but it's God's child. You know, I, I would have thought to myself, you should have come up with a better story than that. You know, I mean, so you think how Joseph might have felt, felt like, you know, give me a break, you know. You know, it, 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 how awful is that? You go out and do something sinful, and now you're saying, you know, and just twisting all of that, right? So Joseph, he's a nice guy. Mary's just a little, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I don't want to completely disgrace her, so I'm just going to get rid of her quietly. He has a dream. And in his dream, an angel talks to him. To Joseph, you know what? What Mary told you, it's true. That child's mine. That child's God's. You need to get up and marry her. What, is, what does the scripture tell us Joseph did? Next morning, he wakes up, doesn't even bother to brush his teeth. He just grabs Mary, runs down to the town hall. He gets, mar- he gets married to her. You know, I'm ad-libbing just a little bit. <laughs> but you get the idea, right? You and I can tell we're worshiping fully when, we're, when, when our obedience is truly responsive to God. You know, when God speaks, we do. I'd venture to guess that everyone sit, every single one of us sitting here today, myself included, has, a, has, a, has an item on our spiritual to-do list that we know that we need to bring our lives into obedience before God, and we haven't done it yet. And, and when, you, when we're worshiping God fully, we have the Joseph effect. Say, I'm going to do that today. I'm going to do that today. I'm going to take care of that today. One last effect. The Anna effect. Interesting, this, this woman that pops up in the story after Simeon. You know, she's in the temple. Scripture says she got married. She was married for seven years. 
when her husband died. The, the language of the original Greek, is, it's hard for us to tell, saying that she lived from that point forward, and when the time she met Jesus, she was 84, or whether from that point, from the time of her, her death, up to when she met Jesus, it was 84 years after that. So we don't know if she was 84 or like 107. Either way, she's an old lady, you know? I mean, they didn't live that long in those days. I mean, even now, like in Rwanda, the average age, average life expectancy of an adult male is like in the 40s, you know? And so here, you know, she's 84. She's old. Or she's over 100. She's really old, you know? And, and, and she sees Jesus in the hands of Simeon. That's kind of the impression we get from the Scripture. But she encounters Jesus in the temple. And what is, what's her reaction? She, she has words of praise. And then the Scripture says, and she couldn't stop talking to everybody about him. One of the ways you and I, you and I can tell if we're worshiping God fully is, is that we're just talking to other people about Jesus. We're just talking to other people about Jesus. We're actively sharing our faith with others. In fact, I want to challenge you as a, as a, as a part of our Advent conspiracy to, to identify a couple of people that you want to try to share Jesus with. And start praying with, for them right, right today. And pray for them all through the month of December. And, and invite them to come to a service. Maybe it's Christmas Eve. Maybe it'll be one of our other services throughout the, this journey. But focus in specifically on somebody that you feel God wants you to share your faith with. Because part of worshiping fully to be actively sharing our faith, which also means we've got to know people that we need to share our faith with. We can't just kind of kick a cocoon into our holy huddle, if you will. But as we wrestle with what you say, you know what, that, that's, uh, I certainly have issues here. You know, I'm, I don't have the urgency I ought to have in connecting with God or, you know, my obedience isn't that immediate or I haven't shared my faith with anybody in months. Maybe I've never shared my faith with anybody else. Uh, how, how, do I, how do I get to a place, you know, what, what's going to prompt me to move to a place where I'm worshiping God more fully? And, and I want to kind of give you just a, a couple of reasons why you should worship God fully. Some things maybe that can light your fire just a little bit. I'm just going to give you a little taste, kind of like the free samples you get at BJ's, you know, just, just a little taste, you know, and, and here's the first one. And, and even though this is extremely familiar to many of us, let's not, let's not minimize the, the enormity of this message that God loves you. God loves you. Whether you like, you feel like you're one of I'm beyond redemption or there's no way. God loves you. The supreme being in the universe who created the world wants to have a love story with you. That's an incredible word. See, this is not love. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment for our sin. God loves you. But here's how God showed his love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us. God has done everything necessary to fulfill his purpose of you and I being able to live in an everlasting relationship with him. It starts now and lasts for all of eternity. You know, God said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. You know, he's not willing to anything. God wants our eternal life to begin now in relationship with him and to last forever. And he's even taken action to overcome the biggest barrier to that happening, which is our own sinfulness. The fact that we want to do life our way, not God's way. And all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God's made provision in the in the place of his son. And that provision started in the manger. And the manger should be just as, as, as convicting to us as the cross is. Because the only reason Jesus lied in that manger was because we were sinners. And God was making provision for us because he loves us. And we can experience that love in our lives by faith, which is just a, a complete trusting of our lives. Saying, you know what? I'm going to do life God's way because he loves me. It's an amazing thing to remember that God loves us. And it can spur us on to worshiping fully. The second truth is likened to the first. But it's a great reminder for us because many of us are on very different paths. Some of them not that great right now in our lives. 
But it's a great reminder to us that God is with us. One of the names given to Jesus in the birth narratives, the stories of Scripture that relate to his birth, is that he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. I don't care where you are in your journey right now, whether you've just gotten the biggest promotion in your life or the best grade you've ever scored on a test or whatever, or whether you're, you're in some of the most difficult emotional or financial moments you've ever been in. God is with us. That's a reason to worship him fully. You know, I've been reading a book off and on just kind of as, as a part of this journey. It's a, it's a book I picked up to the suggestion of a, of a fellow pastor. It's written by a, by a pastor by the name of David Hess. You wouldn't have occasion to know his name because he didn't pastor a big mega church or have a TV show or anything else. But he was a pastor who served in Pennsylvania. And in the mid, um, the latter part of the 1990s, he was diagnosed with leukemia. He was diagnosed with the exact same type of leukemia that, that Sean Kelly has. Cute, my lord, leukemia. His symptoms were much far along, farther along. He, he used to have to stand in his pulpit with a handkerchief in his hand and to wipe his teeth if he freaks because his gums were bleeding constantly. And then his doctor diagnosed him with leukemia. I've been reading just sections of it as I go. I just wanted to read a couple of paragraphs to you about the power of the presence of God being with us. In the fifth chapter, he says, One day a 13-year-old girl by the name of Mary stepped into our lives. She had urged her mother to bring her to the hospital to see us, saying she had something she needed to tell us. See, Mary had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer earlier in that year. A large tumor had been removed that the doctors were uncertain about her chances for a full recovery. One day, while reading her Bible, Mary came across this verse in Psalms from Psalm 118. 1817. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. It spoke hope to her in her valley of trouble. Here she stood beside my bed, cancer free. The tumor was gone and Mary's life had been restored. She lived. She was telling me what the Lord had done. Mary held out a handwritten note card with Psalm 118.17 printed on it. She said, I hung this by my bed when I was in the hospital, she said with a sparkle in her eyes. It gave me hope. I want you to have hope too. You're not going to die. You're going to live too. Then she prayed for us. Can you imagine that? 13-year-old girl. Then she prayed for us. Her words were pure expressions of trust. Voice to a God she had found to be worthy. With a confident smile, Mary looked at me and said once more, You will not die, you will live. And you will tell everyone what the Lord has done. After Mary and her mother left the room, Sherry, which is David Hess's wife, the name of the book is Beyond Hope Beyond Reason, Embracing God's Presence in the Toughest of Times. He said his wife had brought the mail each day to the hospital. Sherry opened the mail. Included in all the expressions of support were five cards with Psalm 118, 17 written on them. The Lord's faithful promises were calling us to a deeper place of trust. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Together we laugh. It was not a laughter of a humorous division, diversion. Rather, it was a confident laughter given to us as a gift from the Lord, born out of the relief that comes from knowing we can trust him. He was showering us with reminders of his strong presence to sustain us. God is always with us and he sustains us. And that gives us reason to celebrate and to worship fully. Will you join me in making a commitment to join in the Advent conspiracy this year by worshiping fully? Perhaps this morning as a, as a result of hearing God's word, you know, just one of these symptoms of, of worshiping fully just really spoke to you. Some of you say, you know, I, I haven't had any sense of urgency in seeking God in a long time. Maybe you need to make a commitment to say, I, I'm going to do that today. Others of you have had things in your lives and you say, you know, I know this isn't right in the eyes of God, but, but I'll fix it later. Maybe it's time for you to have the Joseph effect today. Say, I'm going to change it right now. For others of you... You need to make a commitment to share your faith, to give it away to others like Anna. And for others, it's maybe the need to make the choice of faith, to hear the angel saying to you for the very first time, I bring you good news of a great joy. For today, born for you in the city of David is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who will save his people from his sins. Let's pray together. God, thanks for your word. 
Thank you that Christmas is so much more than packages and Christmas trees and family time, though all those things are wonderful. Thank you that Christmas is your message to us, that you're doing everything you can to live in relationship with us. God, give us hearts to join the conspiracy, to let Christmas change us and change the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.